0: Hello and welcome to the show. Today we're talking about the art of teamwork and how to ace those group assignments at school and university. Group assignments can sometimes account for quite a lot of marks and how well your team works together will be a major determinant not just of your final grade but also of how much you enjoy your course. We'll be answering such questions as how to pick the right people Do you go for the most skilled teammates or the ones you get on with best? What questions you should ask yourselves at the start in order to establish really high-functioning group culture right from the outset? What should you do if someone isn't pulling their weight? How to make the right decisions as a team? And how to handle courageous conversations and resolve group conflict? We're going to be joined today by Professor Mark Durand, an old friend of the show who you may remember from episode 34 on business school and MBAs, and who also weighed in in episode 44 on imposter syndrome. Conversation with Mark is always a huge treat. He's a very well-respected academic who researches teams and high performance and has built a career around studying high performers, often in quite extreme environments, as you're going to hear from him, from elite rowers through to peace activist marchers through to trauma surgeons working in a war zone. His work has been featured by some of the world's most prominent media organisations, including the BBC, The Economist, Huffington Post, Wall Street Journal, The Times here in the UK, the Los Angeles Times, Der Spiegel and Forbes magazine. He has a wonderful gift for teaching people how to get big results for themselves in practice, in their own lives and careers – which is perhaps why he's in such hot demand in running executive education for leaders at companies such as McKinsey, PwC, Rolls-Royce, Shell and UNICEF. Being able to function well in a team is a fundamental skill in the modern world, full stop, and I hope that the strategies you learn today will serve you brilliantly, not just when you're working in groups on academic assignments, but in your life and your career more broadly. So, let's meet Mark and get right into it.
1: So my name is Mark Durand, and I'm a Professor of Organisational Ethnography at Judge Business School, Cambridge University.
0: I think it'd be lovely to hear a little, Mark, if you wouldn't mind, about the research you've done over the years, particularly studying uh, kind of high-performance groups, often in quite extreme circumstances, partly because just it's simply fascinating, uh, and also because it's quite relevant to the conversation we're going to have today about, about working in groups and teams.
1: Thank you. I've um, been quite lucky to have been allowed really to... To venture out and study study people the old-fashioned way by living with them full-time, often in quite unusual circumstances. And this all began in 2006 and I was allowed to spend initially a year with the Cambridge rowers as they prepared to select a crew to race against Oxford in the boat race, which is all they effectively care about, which um, is to win that race. Um, that became two years and I then went on to try and find the most extreme scenario I could think of, which was the war, which is an ongoing in Afghanistan and after about um, 16 months of negotiating, I was allowed to go out to Cambastian in, Af- in Afghanistan, Helmand province, um, and spend a tour of duty in a field hospital with military surgeons. And uh, that was unlike anything I've ever done before or since. Um, it's a life changing experience, but some of the teamwork I saw was absolutely brilliant. And again, you've got these people working quite austere, quite difficult circumstances. After Afghanistan, I decided to do something difficult myself. So rather than just watching people do difficult things. I decided, wouldn't it be interesting to, to, to row the Amazon? It wasn't actually my idea. It was the idea of a friend of mine I'd rowed with. Um, we bought us all boats um, and, and, and we set out to, to do that. And it's not actually hard to do because the Amazon has a very powerful current. So almost anything that floats, you know, when you get on it, at some point you will end up on the ocean. Well, this takes a very long time, but it's quite a dangerous thing. We had no idea how dangerous it was, partly because of the piracy. In the narcotics trafficking. And so we did that in 2013. Then in 2017, I set out to partway walk from Berlin to Aleppo with a group of peace activists to call for an end to the war in Syria. A very unusual experience. Some of the most beautiful moments, I think, of my research have taken place there. Um, Darker
0: moment. Extraordinary set of life experiences. That's just amazing. Clearly, some very extreme situations, both kind of emotionally and in terms of performance. My question for you, based on all of that, and to kind of transition us a little bit into talking about what we want to talk about today and, and working in in groups in academic contexts, you know, fr- from all you've seen, uh, are there any particular characteristics that mark out high-performing groups? You know, any particular magic ingredients, so to speak, for success?
1: I, th- I think there are, and I'll, I'll list two or three for you, but they're not really rocket science. They're the kind of things that we've known about for quite some time. And even in teams in very challenging circumstances, um, they don't really change. I you know? um, think number one, high-performing teams typically have a really good sense as to why they do what they do and why what they do is important and who it's important too. if they do their work well. I think they they understand the impact that it will have, the positive impact on maybe another group of people or a patient or whatever it might be. So the sense of purpose is crystal clear, which then also allows them at the end of the day to have a much better sense of progress than you would have if you don't have that sense of purpose. You know, and it's it's it may sound surprising, but if you look at even fairly recent research, what you'll find is, you know, just that many organizations that should know what they are about. Often don't, you know, it's 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 one of those things that's very easy to talk about, but actually quite difficult to get right. And so that's number one. It's a shared sense of purpose that divides both into the team purpose. You know, we know exactly collectively what we have to do, but also an individual one. So I'm actually as part of a team. I, I share purposes with a team. I I also have my own reasons for being here. But it needs to be front of mind all the time. So that's number one. And number two, I think teams that are effective tend to be teams that are psychologically very safe. What I mean by that is these are teams whereby people don't hesitate to question things they don't understand. You know, they don't hesitate to push back on maybe requests or decisions that they fundamentally disagree with. And they don't find it hard necessarily to give feedback. You know, so it's much easier for them to say, William, can I give you a bit of feedback on something you said yesterday? Are you okay with that? You know, and, and then give it, or just say, William, listen, there's something I tried to do this afternoon. I have no idea if it worked. You know, can you help me out? Can you give me a bit of feedback? Most people seem really reluctant to do that. You know, there's a cultural context to this. You know, so you might find it in, say, the Netherlands, you know, which is my home country, it's a little bit easier to do. But in most countries, even in this part of the world, most people hold back. And what it means is that you know, we kind of feel our way around, kind of in the dark. You know, without much of a cue to, to go by. I mean, there are more extreme examples of this. Um, you know, you and I both. And I know Sky well you know, far better than I do, and this comes back to um, to the team at Sky, where you know they developed this particular approach um, of of going to someone you know in the team whenever it was required and, and saying something like, you know, there's something I need to tell you that I find it difficult to say to you, but here it is," or they might preface it saying, "You know, if I were in your shoes, I would love for you to tell me." Now Sky may not be perfect, but one thing I always appreciated is that people are pretty straight talking. <laughs> Not always, but in my limited experience, you know this much better. I think thirdly, effective teams know when to have courageous conversations and how to have them. It's related to the point of psychological safety, but it kind of goes beyond it, right? So if, if you get to a point where things have run out of hand and you have to have that conversation, you know, the question then is, well, how do you do it? How do you begin that conversation and how do you kind of carry on? Um, And the reason I think it's important is because time and again, as a mediator for the university, um, I I see how often people fall out over what are relatively simple misunderstandings, but it just never get resolved. Now, in a COVID environment, you know, where people rely increasingly on Zoom or Teams, the risk of things running out of hand are even greater. You know, we, we simply don't have the cues that you would ordinarily have face-to-face to help us orient ourselves. You know, we are social animals. We've evolved to become very good at thin slicing and drawing inferences about human behavior. And and that's something that we, we're just now less able to do. Now, there is also good news, right? So the, the opportunity for misunderstanding is much greater in a Zoom environment, and therefore you would say, you know, it's more likely that you have to have possibly a courageous conversation. I think the the upside is, that Zoom can facilitate greatest conversations because you're, you're speaking from a space of safety, you know? So you're sitting in your own room with your own screen and if worst comes to worst. All you need to do is pull the plug you know, and it's over. Right. And, you know, even doing mediations online now via Zoom, which I worried about, I didn't think that was going to work. It's actually worked really quite well. I think because people aren't in a foreign room, they're actually in their own safe, comfortable space. Now, so I think there's kind of the good and the bad. That's very Zoom specific. But uh, but by and large, I would say that those three, you know, I think are are probably most important. I think the fourth one, if I had to add a fourth one, would be uh, knowing how to handle difficult people. So these might be people that actually are really quite good and useful. So they bring a lot to the team. They're very smart, or they have a particular background that just you know complements whatever else exists already in the team. So they're important, but they're just really difficult. They're not difficult because they had to be on the spectrum, they can't help being what they are. I think most people are very forgiving in that respect. But there are people that probably are very difficult in part because they know they can be, you yeah. know, they can afford to. And the question then is, I think, for the team is where do we draw the line? Now sometimes I hear people say, well we, we have a, a line that we draw, a red line, but we draw that line around people, which isn't really fair because it means that you're making exceptions for certain people, not for other people. And so I think effective teams are really clear as where the red line lies behaviorally, which you can get away with and also the sort of things that no matter how great you are, you'll never be able to get away. So I think those four features are probably not that far from from some of what makes Teams work well.
0: That's great. That's great. So having that strong sense of why, that strong sense of purpose and therefore progress, culture of psychological safety, the ability to have those courageous conversations at, at the key moments, and then knowing how to handle those those difficult people sometimes who bring extraordinary skills to the table but can be challenging for whatever reason to, to work with. That last one in particular is, is a great segue actually to perhaps to apply all this to an academic context. I was wondering, so thinking about the stages of working in a group on an assignment for example, at a business school, the first thing you might be thinking about is assembling the team in the first place. Now, I know you don't always have a choice on who your teammates are. Sometimes that might be assigned to you. But if you are in a position where you have that choice, Are there any considerations you might make about who you select as your teammates? Um, I know, for example, in your work, you've written about that trade-off between competence over likability. What would your thoughts be if you were a student trying to assemble the the perfect team to work on a a group project?
1: So um, it's a good question, right? So I think it depends if you already have some people in the team and you're simply looking for one or two others, then your selection will be based, I think, in part on who you have. So what skills are lacking that you need? I think that's a prime consideration. But also, if my team is currently too comfortable, you know, not all that much gets done, it might actually be worthwhile trying to bring some grit into the team and deliberately select someone with the right skills who may not be the easiest, just to ruffle the feathers a bit. Or or vice versa, you know, the team is, is maybe relatively effective, but it's not an easy place to be. And so it might be worthwhile to bring someone with the relevant skills on board who also happens to be a bit of a peacemaker, you know. If you have no one else and it's really just you assembling a team, then I think the first thing you'd always look for probably is a skills base of sorts, right? So what skills do I now need? Because without relevant skills, you're going to have a hard time. I do think it's important to surround yourself with people that not necessarily may be kindred spirits with you or anyone else, but people that are generally well disposed. So don't try to be difficult just to be difficult, but also people that will not hesitate to speak out when they need to. And depending on who you choose, I think you then define your own role as the leader of the team. You know, so you might become a bit of a peacemaker or mediator. You might need to take a stronger role in terms of instilling a sense of purpose in the team, or, you know, if there are natural leaders in the team, you might just take a step back and just let things be and only intervene when things get out of hand. So I think as a leader, the way you define I think you, your own role depends very much upon your answer to the question you just raised. You know, Who are you going to bring to the team?
0: That's great. So getting the right balance of skills, skills perhaps primarily, but then also looking for that group harmony, but also a little bit of grit in there as well. This such a thing as too much harmony. So I think the second question would be, now we've got our team together, what are the sorts of things we might want to think about as we're starting to work together? Are there any conversations you might suggest having, rules you might suggest putting in place, perhaps, to make sure everything gets off to the strongest possible start?
1: So, Yes, thank you. I think there are a couple of things you can do. One would be to engage in some contracting. and That's particularly helpful, I think, if the team is going to depend on each other a great deal and and might have to go through a, a bit of a rough time, potentially, so contracting could, could take the shape of a, co- a set of conversations you might have with your team around people's preferences, right? So it's a really nice exercise developed by a couple of colleagues at IMD in Lausanne, Switzerland. Effectively, what a, the exercise asks you to do is to just sit together in a room or a virtual room, and someone takes a lead and starts asking a series of questions, and all the questions start the same way, which is in your world, right? So in your world, William, um, what makes for a good first impression? And someone else will answer, and you'll give your own answer to it. In your world, what is preferred? Is it harmony or is it directness? You know, Um, in your world, how would I know if you're upset with me? In your world, how do people feel about hugging, or what distance, physical distance, is appropriate? You know, and it gets really interesting because instead of assuming that you know what people are comfortable with, it allows you to to kind of get it out in the open in, in a way that's very lighthearted. And it prevents these misunderstandings that can arise from simply having different, you know, people having different styles of working, different approaches to work. So there's a whole lot of questions. I've only raised four or five of them that you can go through, and it's really quite good fun to do. And so that's number one, your contracting, getting to know each other. think number two, and it's also sort of part of the contracting, would be to sit down, as you said, and to decide on some ground rules. Around behaviors, around purpose, around the security of the information that will go around, what you can and can't talk about with people outside of the team. I think that's very helpful. And I think the third conversation, of course, will be the one on purpose. You know, Are we all clear on what's expected? You may well be surprised that not everyone is clear. So let's not assume people are. Let's just raise the question. And sometimes once you've raised the question, you can decide to develop some sort of criterion on, all right, now we know what good looks like, what we are here to achieve, what would progress look like? You know, how will we will make decisions, you know, other um, questions we can ask ourselves when we need to make decisions that either help us advance that purpose or, or don't. And sometimes you find that you may need to revisit these these conversations, you know, from time to time, as opposed to having a conversation once. But I think you'll feel when the need is right You may need to have... Yeah, I think that's probably important. And also, I think as part of the contracting and something we haven't really talked about yet, um, it's people understanding... What is expected of them, not as a team, but of them as individuals, work-wise, for example. you know. So who really is responsible for what part of what we're about to do? Because that, I think, prevents any gaps from arising. So you thought someone was responsible, it wasn't done because the person had no idea that she or he was responsible for doing so. It prevents overlap. And in a way, it helps people accountable because everyone knows what it is that you possibly have volunteered to be responsible for doing by certain deadlines. And so to have real clarity, not only around purpose, but around what everyone is here to do can be very valuable.
0: I think that's great. I, I really like the idea of, of the contracting, uh, you know, almost creating the user manual of how you'll work and how you're supposed to work together as a team, what you're responsible for, how to get the best out of each other, setting those ground rules for for how the team operates, and then being really, really clear on on purpose. I think that last one in particular was the one we maybe did best, I remember, in my biggest experience of working as a group in academia in my final term project at the Judge Business School. And We'd all just taken our exams, uh, the three of us that were on the team, and we thought we'd perhaps done medium well. But we were all extremely driven to come out of university with a with a first class degree, and so we felt that the best way to do that now was absolutely knock our final project out of the park because that was the only thing we had left to score marks on. So we were all incredibly driven towards that goal, and we all knew each other was very driven towards that goal. And so I think we were one of the reasons we worked very well together. As a group, was that clarity of what we were all aiming for and what we were all trying to help each other achieve? We ended up doing pretty well. We we, we came out with the, the award, I think, for for the top sort of project that year, which definitely exceeded our expectations uh, for what we were going for. But uh, you know, I think that was that was one of the uh, contributing factors that that clarity of drive and purpose. One of my kind of strongest memories from working in that group was often around the big decisions: should we go this way or should we go that way? And we'd often have very, very long conversations trying to thrash out the right answer or the best answer. Do you have any pointers for for a process, perhaps, to help make those judgment calls?
1: First is to recognize that difference of opinion is often a good thing, because it it forces people to think really carefully about the ups and downs of different options on the table. If there are no options on the table, if there is no difference of opinion, then I think a team is at far greater risk of going wrong. And this, of course, ties in with a recurring observation research-wise that diversity in teams matters a great deal. You know, it, it doesn't make teams more comfortable, but it almost always allows for as good, if not better, decision-making. I think once that's done, I think it's just a matter of trying to open up a discussion where people are very clear about not only what they prefer option-wise, but why. And so what it allows you to do is to maybe smoke out some of the assumptions people make that underlie the options that they feel particularly strongly about and then you can test those assumptions. So that I think, you know, that, that open conversation that, that will be somewhat time consuming, it may not at times feel like the easiest thing to do. But at the end, I think the the road you go down, I think, will will prove to be the right one.
0: And so let's take it a step further. So if the group has got itself into a state of what we might describe as, as conflict Talk us through some of your thoughts on on what the group does next. You know, things have things have fallen apart. Maybe there is some bad feeling around the table. How can you move forward?
1: I mean, if if it's very bad, I would say get someone to help facilitate a conversation for you to take this thing out and also to protect the process that you are engaging in. There is not all that bad, but you need to have just a heart to heart conversation. I think you can handle it without someone present. But I think by and large, it would not be a bad thing to start by articulating for yourself and other people in the group what you would like to achieve at the end of that conversation. Because I think what you'll find is most often people want sort of the same thing, just to get on with life, get on with the work. I think then it might be helpful to have a conversation around what people individually think the real issue is what's the challenge here, what's the problem, what's just not, what's not working. And once that's done, I think you have a different type of conversation which is likely to be the most difficult to have but has to be had, which is the conversation not around the technicalities of what's been going on, but a conversation around how things not going well has impacted on the people in the group. Some people might feel disproportionately guilty responsible, for example, or scapegoated or whatever it might be. And so it gives you a chance to say, well, when you said that, I felt absolutely horrible. Did you have any idea as to the impact that had on me? And that's a difficult conversation to have. But what you're trying to do is you're trying to take a sting out of of the problem. You know, most problems become hairy because, because of the emotion that's wrapped up inside it, as opposed to the technical part of it. So once you've done that and you've kind of launched the boil, you can think of solutions. So, what can we do going forward? You know, making sure this doesn't happen again. And finally, a very nice way of ending ending this conversation would simply be to go around and say, you know, take turns. Say, here's what I will commit to doing going forward, or not doing going forward. And then call on a favor from someone else in the group and say, but you, William, there's something I need you to do for me next time around. Just please don't say that, or please say this. You know, something. It's quite a simple structure of these five different features of the kind of courageous conversations that often does help.
0: That makes a lot of sense. I'm wondering if, given the topics we've been talking through, there are any particular, particularly striking examples of either good performance or strikingly problematic performance? I don't really mind.
1: I think most groups tend to work reasonably well. When they don't work well, it's often either because they disagree what needs to be done. So they might have been given a project like you were to judge. And the project is not well-scoped. And so one of the first things you need to do is to rescope scope that project because often the client wants a lot more than you could possibly deliver. And that's a point at which teams can become or can feel quite fragile. I think secondly, it's just people having different ways of working and to have a conversation about how people like to work or to ask someone saying, listen, if I want to get the best out of you, what would I need to do? Or if I have some feedback I'd like to give you, how would you like to receive that? These very basic conversations can be really, really helpful because that is, you know, that happens. I mean, there are people that kind of are what they are and they can't really, be, I mean, they can't really help being what they are. And they're generally well-intended, but it doesn't always come across that way. But it's just because they are carved of a bit of wood. It's a bit different from the rest of us, you know. And so to have a conversation around preferences, around how people like to work and what doesn't work for them can be really helpful. So that is how people often fall out, I think. Not clear on purpose. Or the kind of different styles of work. I mean, the final reason would be if they discover there's someone in their group who will likely benefit having you know, in receiving the same mark, but just doesn't pull her weight or his weight. And those are difficult conversations to have. You know, sometimes there's a reason why people don't pull the weight. Sometimes it may be that actually they are, but it's just not noticeable. You don't see what they're doing. Um, Sometimes people can be converted if they don't pull their weight um, and sometimes it's a lost cause, you know, and you can't really cut them loose. And that is just sort of heartbreaking for the team, but that's kind of life that sometimes happens. And I guess many people believe in some sort of karma that at the end of the day there'll be some accounting, you know.
0: Well, thanks Mark. That makes a lot of sense. And, you know, I really wish, honestly, in, in hindsight, I'd known half of the things we've just discussed over the past 20 minutes or so back when I was starting my group project. So I hope today we've been able to help a number of people who are starting out on group projects of their own uh, and really help get things off to a, a great start and navigate any challenges as they come up. So so thank you for such wonderful insights. If anyone's wanting to find out more about any of the topics we've discussed, I know you have a number of published works and otherwise, is, is there any way you'd suggest they go in terms of further reading?
1: So, I mean, there's some good good work by Richard Hackman, the kind of Harvard psychologist who's no longer with us. And his former student, Amy Edmondson, has written on psychological safety. But a lot of the work is quite academic. I mean, Harvard Business Review has some nice condensed articles. Yeah, I assume they can condensed articles, but they have articles that are a condensed version of the key arguments of the papers that she's written. Um, there are some interesting books by former sports people and sports coaches. And again, you know, not all of them are kind of at the same level. Yeah, but there's some decent works out
0: there. Well, look, Mark, thank you, thank you once again for giving up your time to come on the podcast today. It's been absolutely fascinating talking about this this with you, and thank you once again.
1: You're very welcome. It's good to see you again.
0: Thanks again, Professor Mark Durand, for such an excellent conversation. If you're interested in reading more about Mark's work, I would make two primary recommendations. For more on teamwork in the world of elite sport, see his book on the Cambridge boat race crew, The Last Amateurs, which honestly is an utterly gripping read, as well as having some very interesting insights, especially if you're interested in high performance in the world of sport. This recommendation is for over 18s due to language choices in the book. For a more prescriptive guide to working in teams, Mark's guidebook is called There is an I in Team. And it's full of very sharp and very insightful, perhaps non-obvious observations. Some really great advice for building and working in very high-functioning groups and teams. You can find links to both of those books in the show notes. And with that, thanks again for listening today. I really hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. I will look forward to seeing you again next week. In the meantime, wishing you every success in your studies. If you've got exams coming up, you can now get all of William's favorite tips and tricks to save you time and get you higher grades, all in one handy cheat sheet. Grab your copy at examstudyexpert.com free tips. Thanks again for listening, and see you soon.